As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. Father God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your forgiveness of us. And I pray, Lord, that grace, that love, that compassion, that mercy would transform us as individuals, as a church, and as a community here in Hampstead. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is 11 p.m. when the tavern owner calls last orders at the bar. And not very long after this, one very drunk peasant leaves and he staggers outside into the darkness. With this being the olden days, he, he doesn't go to his car. He goes to the stable and unhitches his horse. And then he's quite inebriated, struggles to get on top of the thing. It takes him a few attempts. And then he starts trotting back home on his horse. Now, as, as I say, slightly worse for wear. So as you can imagine, a drunk man riding a horse, he, he begins to lose balance and starts sliding slowly to the left on his sa- saddle. Eventually, smack, he falls off and hits the floor. Shakes himself down, he brushes the dust off, and again, with some difficulty, climbs back atop the horse. And then he, he just says, No, I'm not going to fall off the left anymore. I'm not going to make that mistake again. No, no. He focuses all his attention on not falling off to the left. And so, very soon, he falls off to the right, and down he goes. Such is human nature, according to the reformer Martin Luther. We are like drunk men on a horse. No sooner after falling into one error do we climb aboard and then fall into the opposite. Now, if you have been with us over the past couple of weeks, we've seen that one of the errors facing the church here in Crete in the letter of Titus is the error of legalism. False teachers had begun telling everyone that God's grace is not enough to save you. Instead, you've got to observe various rules and rituals in order to be clean in God's eyes. And this legalism, the effect of it is it began, people began to question whether they have a certain hope of eternal life. And it also created this sort of two-tier Christianity in the church, between the elite religious types and then the sort of bottom-feeding scum. That's legalism. But last week, we also saw hints that the church was tempted to fall into the opposite error, license. Maybe some had reasoned that since we are saved by grace alone, since we have a certain hope of eternal life, then we have a license to live as we like. We can follow the values and priorities of our culture. Self-expression over self-control. Freedom over submission. Sin over godliness. Well, that was then in the, uh, on the island of Crete, but um, stop for a, think for a moment. We still see these same errors in the church today. You might want to think, examine yourself. Am I tempted towards legalism or, or license? Um, if, I, I don't know, maybe we might um, wonder, or well, maybe, maybe I'm tempted towards legalistic thinking. Well, what would that look like? Well, if perhaps our faith resembles more of a, a cold, uh, repetition of rules, joyless service. Well, that's legalism. Uh, perhaps we think God's affection towards us goes up and down, fluctuates uh, according to our moral performance that week. That's legalism. Perhaps our witness to impure outsiders is completely lacking. We might view them with disgust rather than with compassion. Legalists tend to have no friends outside church. That's legalism. 
Or maybe we see something of licentious thinking in ourselves. If perhaps our faith resembles more of an optional lifestyle choice, a Sunday night kind of thing only. If perhaps we think God is more concerned with our happiness than our holiness. If perhaps we are witness to unbelievers, and we have many unbelieving friends, but it lacks all credibility because we're exactly like them in the way we live. Given your character, given your temperament, your background, which side of the horse do you think you're more likely to fall off of? Legalism or license? Or maybe like me, you find yourself avoiding one only to fall off on the other side. Well, in the light of these two errors facing the church in Crete, the question is, what should Titus teach? Out of a, a desire to avoid license, he can start sort of banging the pulpit a bit more, uh, making everyone feel really, really guilty, turning on the thumbscrews. Uh, try harder. Be better. Do more. He'd avoid license that way, wouldn't he? Or maybe have a desire to avoid legalism. He could emphasize a sort of a, a cost-free version of Christianity with no demands, no expectations, no commitment. How can Titus protect the church from legalism without falling into license? And how could he protect the church from license without falling into legalism? Well, in our passage today, we find the answer. Paul is going to tell Titus exactly what he should teach to keep us as a church and us as individuals firmly on top of that horse. Here's our first point. It's really the theme of the whole letter. Grace teaches us godliness. Look down with me in your Bibles to verse 11, please. Paul writes this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I love it. In, in just two verses, Paul manages to torpedo both the errors facing the Cretan church. It's grace, not legalism. It's godliness, not license. If you're new to Christian things, grace is, um, is a Bible word, which means God's unmerited love for sinners. It's his undeserved kindness which has saved us. Not our moral CV, not our theological pedigree, not our religious service, but grace. And, and grace isn't some sort of abstract philosophy or, or detached academic doctrine. No, notice in verse 11, grace has appeared. Refers specifically here to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. He is grace, if you like, incarnate, embodied. And he brings grace, not just for some religious elite, but for all men, all people. And we saw this, haven't we, Over the, if you were here in the summer term, we were reading through Luke's gospel. Who, who, who did Jesus hang out with? Well, he didn't just philosophize with the Pharisees. He also fellowshiped with the fishermen. He, he tarried with the tax collectors. He partied with the prostitutes. Jesus brought God's salvation to all people. 
And that fits with Paul's ministry, doesn't it? If you were here last week, we saw him applying the gospel to every aspect, every single group in the church, young and old, men and women, slave and free. This is a gospel. This grace is for all people. I've been thinking this week about some of the uh, advertising slogans which kind of capture the spirit of the present age we live in. Now, you might know Nike, just do it, Nike tells us. Uh, Durex condoms, feeling is everything. And L'Oreal, because you're worth it. This is our age, this is the present age we live in, do it, just do it. If it feels good, do it, you're worth it. Notice in verse 12, that God's grace doesn't just save us from this present age, it teaches us how to live in this present age. In fact, grace is almost like a private tutor in almost every subject. A lot of people in the morning congregation, they're, they're busy trying to find a private tutor to get their kids through the 11-plus uh, exams or something like that. Ooh, my kid's terrible at maths, or he needs a, a tutor. Well, notice, grace is a tutor in every subject. Verse 12, it trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, but positively, it teaches us self-control. That, that means our relationship with ourselves. To be upright, that, that's our relationship with others. So I get on with David in the office. It, it teaches us to be godly, our relationship with God. See, grace teaches us on every axis. But how? How does grace teach us? Well, we need to know a little bit of Greek mythology to help us here. Well, you don't need to know it, but I think it's helpful. Uh, you might know, if you know any Greek myths, is that some of the most dangerous monsters were the sirens. The sirens were part bird, part woman, and uh, they would hang out on an island with treacherous waters. And uh, what they'd do, they'd sing this impossibly alluring song. And, and all these ships which sailed past, they'd want to hear more of this amazing song. And so they'd steer their ships towards the island smash on the rocks, and then the sirens would come down and gobble them up because they're monsters, that's what they did. Only two men in the whole of Greek mythology ever managed to resist the lure of the sirens. One of them was called Odysseus. See, seeing the island coming up, he, he commanded his men on his ship to block their ears with beeswax so they couldn't hear anything. And then he had them tie him hand and foot to the mast of the ship because he really wanted to hear the sirens. And so when they sailed through the sirens' waters, the sailors were unable to hear the song. And Odysseus, he was screaming at his men, untie me, untie me, because he wanted to steer the ship so he can get a better listen, but they didn't hear him either, and so they sailed on through. I think some people take this sort of approach in their efforts to say no to ungodliness. It's like they, they block out the lure of sin but by keeping it out of sight and out of mind and out of, out, of, out of sound. They bind themselves, if you like, using uh, accountability partners who will ask them all the hard questions. Now, don't get me wrong here. There is real value in all of those things in keeping us from temptation. But the problem is, is that on their own, they don't change the heart. Like Odysseus, they, they kind of handcuff us, but, but we're still longing to hear the siren song, aren't we? So think about it. Applying the internet filter may hamper your ability to look at internet pornography, but it doesn't positively change your desire to relate to women with purity 
and dignity. Deciding to avoid that really awkward, difficult person at work or, or at church. It might hamper your ability to bitch and moan about them, but it doesn't positively change your desire to love them and serve them. So the other Greek hero you need to know about, the one who survived the sirens, was Jason. Jason and the Argonauts. And he used a very different strategy. See, in his crew was none other than the legendary musician Orpheus. And he had a magical lyre. And as the sirens began to sing their impossibly alluring song, Orpheus pulled out his lyre and played a different tune. And his song was more beautiful than the song of the sirens. And the Argonauts, desiring his song above theirs, carried on through. Friends, in our fight to say no to temptation and yes to self-control, we need to hear a better song. We need a greater love. Which is why Paul tells us to look forward to Jesus' return. That's our second point. Grace teaches us godliness. How? By pointing us forward to a glorious, glorious future. Let's pick it up again in verse 12. Look down with me if you would. Verse 12. Grace teaches us to say no to our ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to get my two-year-old daughter, Chloe, to get excited about something, you don't just tell her where we're going, you tell her who you're going to see there. So nothing lights up her little face as when you say, Chloe, we're going to Grandma's house. And she does this sort of flappy arm thing and gets very excited. Well, so it is with us. Our hope is not so much an abstract place, but a person. Paul began this letter, if you were here a few weeks ago, by declaring that our faith rests upon the hope of eternal life. It's not vague, wishful thinking. It's certain, because God doesn't lie. But here in verse 13, he ties that hope to Jesus and his return. Notice, it is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a blessed hope, a happy hope, hope. See, friends, in our culture, it's, it's not going to be easy to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Temptation bombards us from every single different angle, calling us to live for the now, to invest in the now, to be for the now. Just do it. Well, in the light of this, we need to know that the future with Jesus is certain. Imagine you're on a beautiful beach. Maybe it's Hawaii or maybe it's somewhere on the, uh, the west coast of America. It's a hot day and so you, you go for a swim in the waters. You ignore all the signs telling you about strong currents and sharks and all that nonsense. You, you dive on in anyway. Sure enough, after a few moments and a few minutes, you're swept out to sea and, and fins start circling you. You're in real trouble. So what do you do? You call out, help, 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 and Baywatch come to your rescue. Yes, there's David Hasselhoff on the paddleboard, he's coming uh, to rescue you, and he hoists you out of the water, and he puts you on this big floating platform there in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the sea. You have been saved from the waters and from the sharks by the hoff. 
But the Hoff, he sees that there are other people who need help. He, and so he says, Look, I'm going to have to go, but tell you what, I'm, I'm going to have to leave you on this platform, but don't worry, because soon I'm going to be back with helicopter rescue, and we're going to get you off and, and back to the shore. So just stay on the platform, okay? You're safe, you're saved, stay on the platform. Off he goes. What do you do? Do you get back into the water and start playing around with the sharks? Or do you stay on the platform and await rescue? Well, so it is with us. Jesus has saved us from sin. And knowing that Jesus is coming back, we don't play around with our sin. Rather, we await his glorious return, that happy certainty. Friends, the more you meditate on this future with Jesus, the more you chew on, on, on the person you're going to be with, the less you'll be tempted to hop back into the water and live for the now, and live for sin, and live for self. Grace teaches us godliness by pointing us forward to a glorious future with Jesus. But grace also teaches us godliness by pointing us back to a costly redemption. That's our third point. Let's uh, pick it up in verse 14. Paul's just been talking about the second appearing of Jesus, and here in verse 14 he elaborates more on Jesus' first appearing. Verse 14, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager, eager to do what is good. All the language here is taken from the Old Testament story of the Exodus. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it. You might remember how God's people Israel, they were slaves to, sla- to, to Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh had them baking bricks and hard labor. It's a horrendous life. So what did they do? They cried out to God for rescue. And God heard their cry and he, using this word, redeemed them. He brought them out. Out of slavery. By means of the blood of a lamb the Passover. And you know what? Here in this verse, Paul says he's done the same thing for you and me too. Friends, the reason we long to see Jesus Christ return is because he is our perfect lamb. He says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. You see, his precious blood was shed so that we sinners might be considered pure in God's sight. Just to consider that for a moment. That if you put your trust in Jesus, that complete record of your sin, everything you've done wrong and everything you will do wrong, every wicked word and snideful comment, every wicked thought and evil thought you've had, washed clean by his blood. Which means that like the Israelites, they're no longer slaves in Egypt, they're standing on the other side of the Jordan. We have a new identity to enjoy. We have a new purpose to live. And we have a new motivation to obey. A true story is told of, from the time before the American Civil War, or the northern Yankee, I think he's from New York, who was visiting New Orleans in the south, And he came across a slave auction right there in the center of the city. 
And there on the block was this beautiful mixed-race girl who was there to be sold to the highest bidder. And because of her age, because of her skill in working and her beauty, she attracted a huge number of bids. But just before the auctioneer landed the hammer for the sale, uh, this Yankee threw out an outrageously high bid, and he managed uh, to win the auction. He went up to the auctioneer. He made payment for the girl much higher than the usual rate. And then he promised to, to pick her up the next day at her house. And this he did. And as he knocked on the door and he opened it up, there she was. And it was very clear to, her, to him that she'd been crying all night, weeping, because she was afraid to leave all that she knew and to go off with, with this stranger from the north. But the man then presented her with a piece of paper. She looked at it. She couldn't read. So he said, it's, 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 it's a certificate of your freedom. You are free. She couldn't understand you. What do you mean I'm free? I'm free to do whatever I want. Yes, yes, you're free. You mean I'm free to, to say whatever I want? Yes, you're free. You mean I'm, I'm free to go wherever I want? Yes, you're free. And with tears in her eyes, she said, then, then I'll go with you. I'll go with you. Friends, if we've been re- redeemed from slavery to sin, rather than using that freedom to serve ourselves, rather than making constant day trips back into sin, rather would, you, would eagerly use that freedom to serve our Redeemer, the one who gave himself for us at such great cost. You see, he has given us a new identity to enjoy. He's given us a new purpose to live. He's given us a new motivation to serve. And that means we will desire to do what is good. As I close, I've got a few implications for us. Firstly, for our ministry. If you look down with me at the last verse, verse 15. Paul closes by saying this. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Those of us who have some sort of role in teaching the Bible, whether it's in preaching up here or or perhaps leading a small group or maybe just meeting informally with one another and encouraging one another, I I think we need to be aware of, of falling off either side of that horse I mentioned earlier. I think those of us who, who have a sort of a lean towards legalism, our temptation is to want to see immediate transformation in people's lives. We want to see them stop sinning now. We want to see them commit to serving the church now, to see them boldly share their faith with others now. And that those are all really good and right things, aren't they? But perhaps in our desire to produce quick results... We might be tempted to use guilt or rules or law to force through that change, to engineer it. But I think those of us who are perhaps more tempted towards the license end of the spectrum, I think we're, we're perhaps unlikely ever to challenge someone's ungodly behavior. We're unlikely ever to rebuke someone for wrong thinking or wrong living. Often because we just want to be light. And we want to maintain that relationship, whatever the cost. But Paul says to Titus here in verse 15, that if he wants to see lasting change in the church and in people's lives, then he must teach these things. He must preach grace. 
Grace is a much slower work. But friends, it is a work which lasts. Because grace doesn't just change the externals. It doesn't just force through behavior. It changes the heart. It changes the desires. Which means for us as a church, secondly, the implications for us as a church is that we don't need to pretend to each other that we are all the finished product. I think too often in church life, we, we put on this mask where everything's great, everything's fine. No problems here, no sin in my life. How can I pray for you in small group? Oh yeah, pray for, pray for everything, but uh, I have no sin. We, we keep this sort of guard up. and We like to pretend to each other that we have no significant battles or sin, no temptations, all the problems are out there. Friends, if this passage teaches us anything, is, is, is we can be open and honest with each other because we are all sinners. We are all tempted to live ungodly, selfish, and worldly lives. So we can be open and honest with each other. We can let down the drawbridge. And if we do that, only then will we start doing all those things which we saw last week. Applying that remedy of grace to one another. Because grace isn't just taught from the front. It isn't just done in formal settings. It's transmitted through a thousand personal interactions with one another. As the gospel of grace is intentionally applied to all those specific temptations and difficulties in our lives. So friends, be open with one another. Be honest with one another. And let grace change you. Let grace change us. But finally, what should we take away from this passage as individuals? Well, as we heard from the start, we're all different, aren't we? We have different characters, different temperaments, different backgrounds. Uh, we're all tempted to fall off the horse in slightly different ways. For me, it's probably easy for me to fall into license. I'm the, I'm the youngest son of four. It means I'm a bit of a bandit. It's just the way it is. But recognizing our faults, recognizing our temptations, let's not beat ourselves up. Let's not rack ourselves with guilt. Rather, let's keep looking at Jesus. Yes, Jesus. The Jesus who we look back to him at his cross. The Jesus who redeemed us from everything. The the Jesus who, who died and his blood poured out for us. Look back to him and look forward to him too. Look forward to Jesus, his glorious appearing, that happy certainty. Friends, if you look at Jesus, you can't help but change. If you look at yourself, you just fill up with guilt or pride. Friends, look to Jesus and you will be changed because grace, grace does good. Let me pray. Almighty God, we thank you for such a saviour. We thank you for our God and saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his precious redemption, his blood shed for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, please lift our eyes off ourselves and onto him, and we pray that grace would transform us. We pray we'll be wise in the way that we live. We pray that we'll uh, make practical measures to to keep uh, sin and temptation at bay. But more than that, Lord, Keep us looking at Jesus. Keep transforming us by our vision of him. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.